This evening, our studies in Zechariah 13, verse 9, and the last part of verse 9. This passage uh, begins at verse 7. Let's read it from verse 7. The focus will be on calling on the name of the Lord, how He answers, and that because we call upon Him in truth, then we are His people, and He is our God. We'll start at verse 7, 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. This section in verses 7 to 9 primarily deals with the elect and how they benefit from the death of Christ. God the Father prophesies, and he calls on the sword to strike his shepherd and his associate, the man that is the man Christ Jesus. He is both Lord and man, perfect man, who died for us. Verse 7. And then the prophecy includes the fact that the disciples will be scattered when that happens. However, generally speaking, when God sends forth his word, that there will, although there will be two parts that perish, there will be a third part that will be left. Two parts, one part. He's speaking here of the fact that the majority of people will perish, but there will be a portion, the remnant, that will be saved. And this remnant in verse 9, at the beginning of verse 9, this remnant God tests, he purifies, he purges through the fire, the fire of affliction, through the furnace of affliction. That's the first part of verse 9. Now, these same people, the remnant, the saved, are further described in verse 9 in the last part. It says, they will call on my name and I will answer them. They will call on my name. So that action of calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved is necessary. And he predicts that the remnant will do this in their salvation. They will call on my name. To call upon the name of the Lord, it actually starts way back in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26. To call upon the name of the Lord. This is necessary both in the Old and in the New Testaments. And to do so in truth. These passages we consult are not talking about people who fake it, but people who truly believe it and call on the name of the Lord. 4.26 of Genesis says, And to Seth to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And further, this is something that happens throughout the Old Testament, particularly we find it in the book of Genesis, but it's also in the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. 
Joel 2.32. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Joel 2.32. He also speaks of those who call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever. And when he says whoever, this means Jew or Gentile. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, they, he, they will be saved. Whoever does so will be saved. Your translation may say delivered, but the better translation is saved. In the Greek Old Testament, it says saved. And in Acts 2.21, Acts 2.21, it's also saved. It should be saved because we're dealing with salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And we should note in 2.32 of Joel, the ones who call on the name of the Lord are the ones whom the Lord calls. Or when the Lord calls, then they call upon the name of the Lord. What we have here are two uses of the word call. The Lord in his effectual call by the Holy Spirit, he calls upon the escapees. He calls upon those who are delivered. He calls upon the survivors, the saved. He calls on them to be saved, and then they call upon the name of the Lord, and they are saved. The effectual call, and then the calling of the people on the name of the Lord, in effect, that is a prayer. That's invoking the name of the Lord to plead with Him to be saved from their sins. That's Joel 2.32. We should keep that order of the calling in mind because when people think about the fact that it is necessary to call upon the name of the Lord, people think that that happens on the basis of free will. But it's not on the basis of free will because free will theology is not taught in the Bible. Libertarian free will theology is not taught in the Bible. Therefore, it's not on the basis of free will. That is, man cooperating and doing his part, and then God does his part. It's not man first, God second. It's God first and God only who causes us to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the sequence of calling upon God. God calls and then we call upon him in prayer, invoking his name. More passages on calling on the name of the Lord. Psalm 34, Psalm 34, 15 to 17. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The eyes of the Lord. Now this is speaking of both aspects. God answering the, the people calling upon him and God answering them. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry when they call upon him. He cuts off evildoers, but when the righteous cry, the Lord hears them and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
Delivering out of all their troubles does not mean that you won't have any troubles in life. He's not talking about this present life. He's talking about the life to come compared to this life. Delivered out of all their troubles. God is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit or contrite in spirit, like Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. God is near the contrite in spirit, not the haughty in spirit, but those who are humble and lowly of spirit. We find this as well in Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Verses 14 and 15. Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. God calls on people to have true worship of him. He describes in verses 7 to 13 fake worship, false worship. And then he describes the the wicked in verses 16 to 21. However, here in 14 and 15, he's saying that we should offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He wants true thankful lips. He means the sacrifice of the lips giving thanks to God for who He is and what He's done for us and pay our vows to Him. Because when we are converted, we are then determined and resolute to keep the way of the Lord. And this must be until the end. He who endures till the end shall be saved. So we must pay our vows to God, never break them and never Go back and wallow in the mire. We cannot be dogly and hogly, according to Second Peter 2.22. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a hog or a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. That's not what should happen. We should pay our vows when we call upon Him. And when we do call upon Him in the day of trouble, and what is this time or day of trouble? That is, when we recognize our sin and need to call upon Him for repentance and forgiveness of sins, then He says, I will rescue you and you will honor me. I will rescue you or save you and you will honor me. You will then live a life pleasing and honorable to the Lord. The next passage comes from Zechariah, Zechariah 12 and verse 10. And this will also remind us of the fact that we call upon him because he first pours out his spirit upon us. Zechariah 12:10. And I will pour out my I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is a prediction of Christ being pierced or crucified. And the ones who are guilty of this, or some of those who are guilty of this, will repent, as we, have, uh, as we find in the book of Acts. 
such as the Apostle Paul, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. They did so, but it first took what? Before they mourn over their sins and what they did to Christ, what has to happen? The spirit of grace and of supplication. To supplicate means to petition or to appeal to God. And how do we do so unless the spirit of grace and of supplication is poured out upon us? When he is, then we mourn over our sins and we repent and believe in the cross of Christ. So there we have calling on the name of the Lord in the Old Testament. Now this will also be wrapped up in a very neat package in Romans 10. Romans chapter 10. A couple of these verses as well as others are put together here. Romans 10, 8 to 13. Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart he believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The word that's near us is the word of faith or the word of Christ, the gospel. 10.17 calls it the word of Christ. 10.8 calls it the word of faith. The word of faith, which is faith in Christ and the words that Christ delivered to us, that's what Moses preached according to verse 8. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. And what, what did Moses preach in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? What did Moses preach? He preached that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's necessary to confess and to believe because when we believe, it results in righteousness. When we confess, it results in salvation. He further proves this point based on the Old Testament in verse 11 by citing Isaiah 28:16. Verse 11 is Isaiah 28:16, where in Isaiah also preached that it was necessary to believe in Christ so that we are not put to shame on the day of judgment. Then in verses 12 and 13, he proves that this gospel, this word of faith, word of Christ, is for all who call upon him. For all who call upon him, whether Jew or Greek. Whether Jew or Greek. Weren't the people before the time of Abraham excluded from the lineage of Abraham? Because they were not his descendants, they were his ancestors. So how were Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Seth, Shem, how were they saved 
before Abraham. They weren't Jews. They weren't Hebrew people in the way that we use the word, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So whether it's Jew or Greek, whether there's this distinction before Abraham or after Abraham, there is no need for a distinction in reference to salvation because this is for all who call upon him. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. It's necessary to call on him. Now, those who call on him in truth, those who call on him in truth, receive an answer from God. It says in Zechariah 13, 9, And I will answer him. I will answer him. To have this assurance that when we call on the name of the Lord and that he will definitely answer us is meant for our comfort, peace, and assurance. That when we call on him, he will answer us. And he says so, I will answer him. Now, in 10.6, he said something like that as well. 10.6, And I shall strengthen the house of Judah, and I shall save the house of Joseph, and I shall bring them back, because I have had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. He will answer them. This assumes that they call on him. If they call on him, then God will answer them. He hears the prayer of the righteous, but not the wicked. God hears the prayer, the calling on his name of those who are righteous, those, but not the wicked. And when do we become righteous? When God changes our heart and grants us faith and repentance, that's when we call on him. At that point, we are in the category of righteous, not wicked. But those who are still in a state of wickedness, God does not answer them. He's not obliged to answer their prayers. In the book of Proverbs, we see this in chapter 15. Proverbs 15, 8. 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Proverbs 21, 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent. Proverbs 28, 9. 28, 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. His prayer is an abomination if he turns away from listening to the law of God. No need to pray because it is detestable in the sight of God. And also it says in 1 Peter 3, 7, 
addressing the husbands and the way they treat their wives so that your prayers may not be hindered, which means God won't consider and answer prayers when that occurs. 1 Peter 3.7 So that's how he deals with the wicked. But he's promising here and assuring us, and I will answer them. The righteous, on the other hand, have this confidence in God. Isaiah 58, 9. Isaiah 58, 9. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. When one lives righteously before the Lord, then when we cry to him, he will answer us and say, here I am. He'll answer our prayers. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65, verse 24, 65 and 24. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. This actually did happen to a righteous man, the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, are his prayer, righteous prayer, confessing his sins and the sins of the people to the Lord. And he pleads with God to forgive them, to listen and to take action by the time we reach verse 19. And we find in verse 20, we'll read 20 to 23. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. It says it repeatedly, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying. 21, while I was still speaking in prayer. (coughs) And in verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. Why was God so quick, so eager to answer the prayer of Daniel because he was righteous. And before he finished praying, God sent the angel in the form of a man, Gabriel, to answer and to help him understand the vision. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, 11 to 14. 
Jeremiah 29, 11 to 14. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. In 11, the plans that God has are plans for peace and not for evil or calamity to give us a future and a hope. This is in the midst of afflictions. Then verse 12, you, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. I will listen to you means I will answer you when you call upon me in prayer. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's the kind of earnest, diligent prayer that should be offered to God. Then he says in 14, and I will be found by you, which also speaks of his sovereignty. I will be found by you. It's not that we go finding God, but God is the one who is, he says, I will be found by you. God is the one orchestrating this finding of him and the restoration. He will fully restore those who call upon him in truth. This is further a New Testament assurance that God will answer. When we pray that God will indeed hear our prayers, hear our pleas. We find this in John 16, John chapter 16 and verse 20 verses 23 to 24. John 16, 23 to 24. And in that day you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. James 1, 1, 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But this should be with a whole heart, like it said in Jeremiah. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9. 1 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, God will forgive us. He'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Also, 319. 1 John 3:19 We know by this that and we'll read to 24. We know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. 1 John 5:14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. The assurance that God will answer us when we call upon him in truth. Further, not only will God answer us, God will say in Zechariah 13:9, it says, I will say, they are my people. They are my people. For God to make that declaration, to make that announcement, is a very important announcement. They are my people. Whose favor do we need? Whose favor do we want? Not the people of the world, but God himself, who is our creator and redeemer. We need him to tell us, to assure us that we are his people. And that's the promise. They are my people. And why is this important to be identified this way? Let's see. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, 4 to 6. Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. God, he marvelously delivered the people out of Egypt. And then in verse 5, he presents a condition. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... After the grace of God was demonstrated to them in verse 4, now that grace of God is supposed to work in them 
for them to obey and keep his covenant. And if that happens, then they shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And only then will they be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But if they don't do that, if they don't obey and keep his covenant, then they are not going to be his own possession, his own people. They will not be a kingdom of priests and they will not be a holy nation. In fact, God already disowned them in Deuteronomy 32, in the days of Moses. He made this promise to them and this condition, but in Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 6, we read that God already disowned them as not his people. And why? We'll see here. 32, 5. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. He says that in truth they are not his children. In fact, they are a perverse and crooked generation. They are a foolish and unwise people. They don't belong to him because their wicked deeds manifest who they really are. Hosea, Hosea chapter 1. The book of Hosea, chapter 1. And we start at verse 1, 1, 1 to 11, the whole chapter. We're going to see a contrast here. People disowned by God and then people owned by God. First disowning and then the owning. 1, 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Be'eri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Debliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever Forgive them, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, 
or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo Ruhama, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. You are not my people, and I am not your God. Well, these three children, the first one in verse 4, the son Jezreel, God sows. God is sowing judgment or scattering judgment against the evildoers in Israel. In verse 6, a daughter is born with the name Lo-Ruhamah, meaning no compassion. Lo means no in the Hebrew language. Lo means no. And Ruhamah, compassion or mercy. No compassion. That's the name of the daughter. No compassion. Then in verses 8 and 9, a son is born, another son. And what is his name? Lo Ami. Ami means my people. Lo is no. So not my people. That's the name of the son. Not my people. Why? Because of their sins. Yet in verse 7 and in verses 10 to 11, we have redemption. In verse 10, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. This passage is actually a passage that relates to the ingathering of God's people throughout the world, Jews and Gentiles. Because where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. The people who currently are not considered God's people will one day be considered God's people. That's the point. And who are not God's people when Hosea is saying it? The Gentiles. In terms of the covenant relationship, they're not his people, but they will be his people. In chapter 2, verse 23, Hosea 2, 23, And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Which is what essentially we have in Zechariah 13.9. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Because God's compassion comes upon them, therefore they respond like this. We find these passages quoted in the New Testament. The first is in Romans 9 to prove the same point. Romans 9, 25 and 26. 
Romans 9.25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Romans 9.25 is Hosea 2.23, and Romans 9.26 is Hosea 1.10. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is Peter putting together both Exodus 19, 4 to 6, and also Hosea 1, 10 and 2, 23. Elements from Hosea 1, 10 and 2, 23. Peter understands what Moses and Hosea preached. That now that God calls us his people, we are able to say, you are my God. And we find it finally in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. In the new heavens and new earth. It says in 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Further, 21.7, He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. These words of redemption, words of hope, for those who truly call upon the name of the Lord, God answers them and he confirms the relationship which is eternal and permanent. They are my people and we will say, the Lord is my God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.